Hey friends, I'm Stacy and I'm Melissa. And we're teaming up each month to chat about books. What makes our podcast a little different is that we want to encourage your curiosity beyond the book. So how will we do that? In addition to discussing the themes and characters and a review of the book, we will also discuss what the book taught us and how it inspired our curiosity well after the story finished. Now, let's get on with our episode. listeners. This is the Curious Reader Podcast, and we are so happy you joined us today. In our last podcast, I shared that in the months of April and May, the Gosstown Public Library is starting a community conversation about the environment. The library will separate fact from fiction and foster a dialogue to improve our town and planet for the future. Topics will include trash and recycling, stormwater, weather, global climate change, birds, bees, and much more. Melissa and I decided to explore a book that would fit with that theme in a dystopian way. So today, we are discussing The Electric Kingdom by David Arnold. And before I share with our listeners the gist of the book and a few of my thoughts, I do want to share that I was probably about 90 pages into the book, uh, and I paused and wondered, with everything that was going on in the country and the world right now, if this was still too fresh uh, for this post-apocalyptic book about a deadly fly flu. Yeah, Stacey, I agree. Some of it did hit too close to yeah. home. Um, so let me tell you about some of the topics covered in the Electric Kingdom that I considered for themes today, um, but that I did not use. Um, one was technology, which was a big theme. Cinnamon, art, movies, dreams, food, survivalism, racism, and technology. Food seems to be a topic that we can find in all of our books. <laughs> and I love food, but uh, except those TV dinners that were in the Queen's Gambit, I definitely would not like those. <laughs> and honestly, I didn't want the um, metalite pouches that they talked about in the Electric Kingdom either. I, I'm envisioning those that like those ready to make, like ready to eat MRE kind of things. And no, I don't like those. No, those sound pretty disgusting. Yeah, that's, yeah. Sorry. So before you go into a summary of the book, let me tell you about the themes that I did choose. <laughs> Today, we are going to discuss the book's New Hampshire setting, which seems appropriate as we are in New Hampshire, yes. the science behind the book, and the religious symbolism in the book. So take it away, Stacey. Okay, here we go. So the year is um, 2043. And for the last 18 years, a deadly fly flu, it's very hard to say that together, fly <laughs> flu, um, believed to have been the result of bioengineered experiment where scientists use a virus to genetically modify a honeybee, and it had gone wrong. And it's taken over the world. Our story takes place in a post-apocalyptic New Hampshire, where the flies have devastated the human population. Actually, most of the adult population is gone, save for a few. Um, and what have left the children who were not yet born or were just babies when the deadly swarms started? The story is narrated in multiple perspectives through the vantage point of three main characters. So the first character that I want to talk about is, um, we'll talk about Nico. Nico is uh, 18 years old, and she lives in an isolated, boarded-up farmhouse with a bell tower. Nico's mother has passed. Uh, she fell ill, and the belief is that she succumbed to the fly flu. 
And I'm going to take a break right here because I actually want to talk about this fly flu for a second. On one hand, there are these flies. Um, They swarm and they completely consume the animals and the humans, pulling them up to the sky uh, and dropping nothing but their hollowed out bones to the ground. Uh, The story talks about the bits and pieces that were scattered in these uh, desolated towns. And if that's not enough, there's the flu attached to it. At first, it moved through quickly. Medicine couldn't even keep up with it. And as time passed, it also appeared that the virus could lay dormant um, for years inside a person until something caused it to replicate. So back to Nico. She's lived in this farmhouse with both her parents for her full 18 years. And as I said, her mother has passed as a result of the fly flu. And Nico fears her father is not far behind. One day, uh, Nico's father has a bag packed and it's waiting by the door. And he says it's time for Nico to go. There's specific circumstances that require her to leave and she's not really sure about this. Uh, And her father believes it's her destiny. So Nico and her loyal dog, Harry, set out on a journey following the Merrimack River in search of a secret portal to the city of Manchester. Right next door. Oh my gosh, that's crazy. Um... Our second main character, that is Kit. He is 12 years old, and he lives in an abandoned movie theater, which I think is kind of cool, with his mother. And there's also two older children that live with them, um, Monty and Lakey. Uh, Kit's mother is kind of the adopted mother of these two because a swarm had killed uh, their biological parents back when Kit was very young. So Kit, along with Monty and Lakey, are also thrust into their own journey. Um, a destiny, so to speak, as they have heard a radio loop of this safe community that's found at the Isles of Shoals. Uh, they, too, are going to follow the Merrimack River to what they hope is a safe destination. And along the way, Kit and Nico find each other and some others. And this journey is really at the heart of the story. And so now for our, our final main character, the mysterious deliverer. And here's all I'm going to tell you about the Deliverer. (laughs) First, while Nico and Kit's narratives are told in third person, the voice of the Deliverer is in first person. The Deliverer's chapters are not as frequent in the beginning of the book, but they do pick up in length and frequency as the book progresses. And I suggest you read those parts carefully. So, my first thoughts. The book cover. It is stunning. And I can totally see the beauty of New Hampshire in this cover, but that's not the main point to me. Nico um, and her dog Harry are on the cover. They're walking along the river with its rocky edges, a reflection of a beautiful blue sky. Some autumn leaves of golden burnt oranges are still clinging to the trees. Tall evergreen pines extend into the sky, and a soft coating of white snow barely covers tufts of grass still cloaked in their dormant winter brown. Does that sound like a barren, desolate, post-apocalyptic wasteland? No. No, No, it doesn't. Um, This was one way the author made this book so different, I think, from other post-apocalyptic books. So even with the flies still swarming, Mother Nature had a resiliency, and there was still beauty to be found. Yes, some towns had magnitudes of destruction worse than others, a smell of death worse than others, But our travelers found beauty, hope, awe, and wonder, even among the sadness and loss. So here's a quote from the book. It says, Concord as a city was beautiful, 
a unique mix of wildlife and civilization, as if the humans of old, or the Concordians of old, at least, had figured out how to grow and thrive without destroying the natural beauty around them. An environmental and social responsible theme did run throughout this book, um, and it was subtle at times and stronger at others, but I found it more uh, philosophical, like this juxtaposition of how human touch can turn things so bad. Um, I think Lenin, he's one of the characters in the book, um, he actually says something like, it's the opposite of Midas's touch. Human touch turns to garbage. Um, but the other side is this amazement at what humans could create as they marvel at the ancient cities and towns around them. Do you have any thoughts on that, uh, Melissa? Did you, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I could talk about... Um... <laughs> I threw something at her. <laughs> so one of my main interests is material culture, which is the stuff that humans make. Yeah. And I really found it a beautiful part of this book um, to think about the ways that humans positively impact the world, even though the book was kind of focused on the negative. Yeah. I think the, the mention of the cities and, and that kind of thing... Yeah, I felt like there were pockets of it in there where you where you saw a little bit where there was the marvel of. Well, and of course those yeah. bookstores they walk yes. in and the, the yeah you, we'll get to that. we'll get to all that <laughs> later. Um, so moving on to another thought, and it's actually my final thought, so that we can um, hear about our themes today. Because sometimes too, when I'm talking a little bit about the book, I don't want to go too much because our themes sum up so many other wonderful things about it. So. One theme that could have fit this book um, would be storytelling. The only world these characters know is the fly-flu world, right? So they don't have a um, recollection of what New Hampshire looked like before with cars in movement, people at the park, uh, people going to the theater, electricity flowing through the power lines, uh, a teen their age throwing a frisbee to their dog in the backyard. That modern age is only known through the bedtime stories that their guardians tell them. Kit was lucky enough to have books to look through, and Nico also had books at the farmhouse. And at one point, Kit is talking about a book that he saw with pictures in it and a film, a film reel um, that he found. And he states, The book made it seem like these people were silly for thinking how amazing it was to watch a train pull into a station or a horse run for three seconds or people walk in a garden. But I get it. If I saw a photograph move... So storytelling is integral to, the, to this story, and storytelling is exactly why Kit and Nico are destined to go on their journey. I thought it was interesting to think about them not knowing the modern things that we yeah. know, which is kind of the opposite of our kids today. You know, if they have to think back to when we didn't have yeah. um, uh, just the idea of these kids having le even less than we had was was interesting. And it, 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 there were some parts of the um, story that reminded me, I think, a little bit of like, um, Fahrenheit 451. And I think it was just the names they were giving to some of the things that they really didn't know what they were. They were just going by stories that their parents had told them. And so when they kept talking about like money, they were saying like cash bucks, um, you know, and, and so things like that. And it was kind of funny to, to hear um, these very simple words that they were using for some of the things that they weren't really sure what they were. They were just, yeah. Yeah. And it really is like going back in time Think stories were passed on through oral history. They weren't yeah. written down and that's what's happening. That's what's exactly. happening. Here. 
so that was kind of neat in the story to see that. Um, and just so our readers know, uh, the fly flu is not the focus of this story. So you won't find an exact reason why or even how to fix it. Uh, you know, that that's kind of there. It's there, um, but it's not the main element. Uh, I think the focus is science and faith and friendship, belonging, and the courage of existence, even in trying times. So I had a lot to say about that. And while storytelling is not one of our themes, Melissa has three great ones. And I can't wait to hear her share about them, especially the New Hampshire one. All right. So take it away, Melissa, with theme number one. I kind of wish I picked storytelling, but there really is a lot in this in this book. So <laughs> Another follow-up. <laughs> yeah, that wasn't even in my list of things that I could talk about. So Yay, good catch, Stacey. found one. <laughs> so theme one, New Hampshire. I want to start by saying that I loved that the setting for this is New Hampshire. And it was a surprise as I was reading all of a sudden, they started mentioning New Hampshire. I'm like, wait, what? <laughs> right, I know because the book, um, like the the book insert, I thought, oh, let's do this one too because it says New England. Like, and then when I started reading, I was like, oh my gosh, this is actually New Hampshire. Yeah, usually, usually New England is Maine or Massachusetts, <laughs> not usually New Hampshire. So it certainly is extra special when a book mentions places you know. Yes. Um, it seems more real. Um, I wondered why David Arnold picked our state. He's actually from Kentucky. Um, and I wondered if maybe he grew up here. He even named uh, Books a Million in Concord, The Bookery mm-hmm. in Manchester, and the Isle of Shoals, where my high school's 10th grade students go for a marine biology trip each year. So uh, it's very, very uh, relatable for us. And actually, I think, I don't know if the Hooks at Public Library are the knows this, but they also mentioned the Hooksit Library. I think at one point they were talking about the red books or something about the books. And um, it said that books that I, or I had read at one time at the Hooksit Library. And I was like, I wonder if they know they're in there. Maybe he'll mention Goffstown next time. Yeah, that's because one of the best ways to do research is to reach out to experts. So guess what I did? (laughs) I decided I would ask David Arnold. Obviously, he's the (laughs) ultimate expert on his own book. So I wanted him to explain about this New Hampshire connection, and he had a form on his website to contact him. So I did that. I was so thankful when David responded immediately to my inquiry. I mean, like immediately. I put it in, and <laughs> there he was. Um, so I asked, quote, how did you choose our fair state as the setting for your book? Have you spent much time here? And he replied, quote, thanks so much for reaching out. I'm honored that you guys will be discussing my book and happy to talk about the glories of New Hampshire. Smiley face. (laughs) I chose that area for a couple of reasons, primarily because my wife's extended family is from Maine. So I've been up a few times and fell in love with that part of the country. We've flown some, but driven up twice, and I always prefer the drive. Those long stretches of road winding through the woods and mountains, I just love it. My wife's uncle has some property on top of a mountain on Moosehead Lake, and the house has a deck with the most amazing view, mm. and he attached a photo to this to the email. I found myself thinking about a father and daughter telling stories on that deck, and maybe the daughter has never left her house. So what in the world would she think of these woods? And what if she had to cross that land for some reason? And you can see where this is going. But yeah, it all started with that view on top of a mountain in Maine. And I knew I needed a somewhat industrial town for her to land in. And having 
been to Manchester a couple times. I love the mills along the riverside, and it all just clicked. He goes on to say, I took took two dedicated research trips to the area as well. Google Earth is helpful when writing, but there's no substitute for experiencing a place for yourself. At the very least, these trips confirm and enrich what I already know, but there are always one or two instances when I find something entirely new. For example, on one trip to New Hampshire, I was thinking Nico's path along the Merrimack River when I stumbled across books a million, million, and I was like, oh, this is too good. I mean, it was right on her route and one of those magical moments when the research gods just hand you a gift. You can see his beautiful writer's prose Exactly. (laughs) I went inside the store, walked around, picturing what the place might look like in a post-apocalyptic world. Pretty quickly, I knew my characters were going to spend the night in this abandoned bookstore, and it wound up being one of my favorite scenes in the book. And of course, I fell in love with the bookery in Manchester, and that whole downtown area is so great. I hope this helps. And again, thanks so much for reaching out. Thank you so much, David. It never hurts to reach out and ask. Sometimes the best way to do research is to ask the expert directly. I really appreciated David's time and his openness to to having us include his email here. I actually wrote to him and said, do you mind if I read it? And he said, sure. I probably should have asked him if he would record himself, but maybe next time. I know. So I was like, oh, is that going to be our interview maybe? I didn't want to push it. Uh, (laughs) I got you. I got you. His response was wonderful, and I was so excited when you emailed me and said that you had reached out to David Arnold, and that he replied. Um, I was home when I got Melissa's email, and I ran to both of my uh, young adult sons, and I said, you know that book I'm reading for the podcast? Well, it takes place in New Hampshire, and Melissa, Melissa reached out to the author, and he answered, what? I was so excited, and this was their response. It was a little less exuberant. That's great, Mom. <laughs> so, uh, whatever. I was so excited, though. <laughs> So I love that Arnold took two uh, dedicated research trips, and I love that he walked into BAM, BAM because um, actually I would bring my boys to BAM when they were the younger two, and we would just kind of hang out in in the store there. And envisioning a a post-apocalyptic world is kind of cool. And just one day after finishing this book, uh, I too was traveling along the Merrimack River, but I was in a car. Um, and I was in Concord, and I was driving to that same shopping complex that houses Bam. I happened to glance at the river, and immediately I was hit with that scene from the book, and it was almost like time had stopped for a minute, and my eyes saw no cars, no people, just trees and water and empty silhouettes of buildings. I kind of shook my head, chuckled, um, and continued on, but it was really kind of a strange sensation. Yeah, when I was reading and he mentioned New Hampshire, I could really visualize this, yeah. this journey the person took. Before I go on to my next theme, I just want to mention that it's really windy here, and you may be hearing some trees yes. banging on the library. So one of the lovely things about doing this in an old library. Yep, you get all those little extras. Natural noises. <laughs> so on to theme two, which I will call the science behind it all. So again, with the idea of going directly to an expert, I decided to talk to Goffstown High School biology teacher Spencer Galloway about the science in the book to explore its accuracy and to better understand. And I really should give a shout out to all my colleagues at Goffstown High School because they've been really generous with their time. We actually opened full time this week to students. So the teachers have been really, really busy replanning. Um, they, they had 
<laughs> they had plans for our hybrid model, mm-hmm. and now it's totally different. So um, thank you so much, Spencer, for for agreeing to do this. I know thank you're quite you. busy. Um, Mr. Galloway and I have collaborated on a large-scale research project called the Marine Biology Project for a number of years now. This year, amid COVID, and as we were involved in that hybrid learning model, he decided to do a project that involved his honors students reading genetics books, which Mm -hmm. I helped him pick, and I got copies for him. So after reading The Electric Kingdom, I knew he was my go-to guy. (laughs) I had five main questions that I fired at him. It's a little different than our past interviews because I really was digging for the facts on some specific things. Um, He gave me very short, thoughtful answers. And in the next part, I'm going to explain each question as it relates to this theme and then play his answer going back and forth between the two excuse me, the two of us. If you want to catch our whole interview, please visit the Curious Reader podcast on our YouTube page. So I first asked Mr. Galloway about those flies in the book. Keep in mind that he did not read the book, so he relied on my description Mm -hmm. of the events. The book says that the flies were an experiment of humans, that Russian scientists had used a virus to genetically modify... Sorry, just turning a page (laughs) to genetically (laughs) modify the honeybee. Only it went wrong. First off, I asked Mr. Galloway if this scenario is ridiculous. And here's what he had to say. Well, it's not ridiculous. In fact, I mean, when we take a a look at kind of manipulating, say, genetically engineering a honeybee or looking at the population of honeybees, they have been decreasing. So taking a look at maybe introducing some sort of Genetic enhancement to improve their survivability is something that they would probably take fairly seriously. So there are definitely two ways. Well, there's multiple ways for genetic genetic engineering. And besides just flash bombing them with some sort of radiation, they use viruses as vectors to insert genomes into cells or partial genomes. And then, of course, there's the new technology over the last couple of decades called uh, CRISPR, which they can actually go in, edit, edit with precision and in, insert um, genetic material that they would want to be expressed. So it is absolutely 100% possible. I then asked if an experiment could go so awry that we could create something horrible like these killer bees, and if this is part of evolution. Unfortunately, his answer gave me no <laughs> comfort. Um, I think that, you know, when we talk about evolution and changing the genome, that if we change it, we may not know the extended outcome. Um, I think that that's a true possibility. So we talk about artificial selection, right? Even though it's not natural selection, natural selection is a driver for evolution. However, artificial selection, like, for example, the tomatoes, the corn that we eat, the potatoes, the dogs that are in our home have been artificially selected for, which has changed their breeding. And change the evolution from wolves to to canines that we see at home. And sometimes we can do what's called these gene drives. And we can insert these genes that might be what we consider selfish genes that will go on to progeny at a higher rate than other genes. And we can drive a gene into a population, forcing a quicker end result to this evolutionary concept. So my third question related to flu. The characters in this book kept referring to fly flu, but I know that flu is a very specific disease, so I asked Mr. Galloway to explain this. 
Well, I think the term flu, they're probably using it incorrectly. I mean, flu is a respiratory droplet form virus that goes from, that's air and it, and it follows that six feet rule as well as, you know, like COVID-19. So with the, it follows more of a vector borne illness where a substance, whether it's a parasite or a virus is, is transferred from a, a organism to the host. So it's not necessarily what I would call flu in that sense. So the transmission is different. The, the, the symptoms are different, which would cause it to say not be in that family. In my fourth question, I asked Spencer or Mr. Galloway to my students about the aspect of the book that talked about the genetically modified honeybees locked away by a character called Bruno, who survived through cannibalism. Take a listen. I mean, cannibalism is widespread in a lot of animals in, in the animal kingdom. I mean, even cane toads and hyenas and lions will uh, perform what's called infanticide, where they actually consume the infants of another lion in order to propagate um, the lion to go back into heat, so to speak. Um, and then sustaining that, of course, is a different story. So, I mean, we got to look at population dynamics and birth and death. If death rate is in, is in greater than the birth rate, then that population could sustain on that cannibalism. But as long as the population is reproducing and they're able to provide food, then yeah, the possibility is there. I think that if you go to cannibalism, it's due to the fact that, you know, there is no, there was no food source to begin with. So lions, for example, if they eat the infants, they're doing that to propagate their own line. They wouldn't eat the infants of that line. So they would go on to their own food source after that. The science behind this all is so fascinating. I could talk to, to Mr. Galloway, Spencer, for ages. Um, he actually sent me, uh, after our conversation, an article on the octopus who has um, nine brains, apparently. So that was very cool. But anyway, I always learned so, lo- uh, so much from my biology uh, colleagues. I could have spent so much time talking about cannibalism all by itself. <laughs> So my final question related to how animals and insects work together, as our swarm of bees did when they swoop down to attack. Take a listen. We see this all the time. We see it with honeybees defending their nest against murder hornets. We see this in ants all the time. Swarm type behaviors that will help prevent, you know, destruction of the hive, so to speak. So the honey, well, the murder hornets, it was a big deal, big deal, right? So the murder hornets came over from um, Japan. Our honeybees had no way to deal with them and uh, devastating our, our honeybees. Well, the honeybees in Japan will actually swarm the murder hornet, start vibrating, heat up the nest, kill the hornet, but then survive because they can survive at a few degrees higher than they heat up the nest to, but their murder hornet can't. So this behavior is seen all over. Well, it's, it's, it's kind of a learned behavior, right? So it's the red queen hypothesis. It's, it's kind of very similar to the gazelle and, and the cheetah. The cheetah gets faster, eats the slower gazelles. And when they eat the slower gazelles, the cheetah population gets faster. But then if the cheetah population gets faster, the cheetahs have to get faster because the slow ones die. So then, so that's, it's one chasing the other. So as the murder hornets were developing their hunting rituals, the, the, Honeybees in Japan were honing in on protective means. And this became a learned behavior that now is a way to protect the, the hive. Whew, that was a lot. And luckily, I had an expert 
to explain this all because I often watch science fiction or read science fiction and I don't know enough to know if it could really happen. And these kinds of writers do a lot of work to make sure that their books are accurate. And actually, you had a case of that. That's right, Melissa. Um, so when I was reading it, too, I was kind of wondering, okay, so how much of this could could really happen? So I, I'm so excited to have those the, the interviews um, from an expert. But um, when I, I came upon an interview that uh, David Arnold did, and he was talking about the story, and you know, um, he had said in in the interview that originally it was Houseflies that he had put in the story, and and I can't remember who was an editor or a, a science friend, but somebody had come along and said, no, yeah, no, Houseflies can't do that. Like that's not going to work. <laughs> the science behind it's not there. Uh, and he was so thankful for that. Like, okay, ooh, all right, let's like you know brainstorm then what will work to make this book um, accurate. So, so yeah, they put, writers put a lot of research in um, to their stories. And so that is great to, to hear that it we had all confirmed. Yeah, yep. exactly. So he, congratulations, Mr. Arnold. <laughs> We're moving on to our third theme, Melissa, which is religion. And I'm guessing that this aspect of the book was your favorite. Um, not so much because of the religion part, but because of how, um, there was so much symbolism used, um, in the book. And I thought in one of our earlier podcasts, and I think that it was probably a song of rates and ruins because there was tons of symbolism in that, um, that you had mentioned maybe a lecture or something that you had done on symbolism at one point. Um, anyway, I could see you being super excited about this part of yeah. the book. <laughs> I actually enjoyed the science part the most <laughs> because it was fun to question things I didn't know about my curious brain of mine and to have Mr. Galloway teach me some things. Um, but this aspect of the book, the religious aspect really jumped out at me because of that symbolism that I'm so interested in. And because of my art history background, I actually um, took four semesters of medieval and Renaissance art, which wow. is all about religious yeah. symbolism. All the art back then was religious. <laughs> so um there is so much religious symbolism in this book, and I started to notice it a few chapters in. Um, and this is significant, especially when we're talking about a book that relates to man's relationship with the natural world, how much man influences our natural surroundings. Don't get me wrong, this is not a religious book, but it is literature powered by reference to the Bible, um, which is um, uh, as much as it is art that man creates. So it first struck me that there's a lot in here about mothers and children. It yes. keeps coming up over and over. And this made me think about the Madonna and child. First kit is Christ-like. On page 247, the author writes, quote, But one night in the commune, an angel spoke to her in her dreams. The angel told her not to be afraid. And then when she awoke, or when she woke up, she had this key in her hand. He pulled the necklace out from under his shirt and coat and showed them the silver key attached to it. And then she got pregnant with me and saw a sign that she remembered from before the world went dark. Yes. Later on, the deliverer buries Echo's mother, another character, and his sister and places a twig across them, um, yep. shaped like a cross. cross. The teens talk again and again about the wisdom of their mothers. Quote, as it is written... Cinematic Bible reference. So let it be written. So let it be done. Mm -hmm. Do you remember this from yep. the Ten Commandments? So um, there was that in there. 
Um, in the end, Nico seems to be the Christ-like character, and perhaps the architect is meant to be godlike. Um, that really struck me. I also noted that the deliverer is godlike, and some of this, if you haven't read the book, is going to be a little confusing. But do keep in mind yes. this this theme of of God and religion. The deliverer is turning dials, trying to control people in a way that some, mm-hmm. like an omniscient God, yeah. might. Um, I suspected early on that the deliverer was a god or a devil. That was probably my first inkling that hey, there is religion in mm-hmm. this story. And, and that may be your experience if when you go on to read the book. Um, uh, the power the being had and the power to loot time is never really explained, explained fully in the book, but we can ascribe it to some kind of religious force, force perhaps. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm just going to note some things I noticed throughout the book. Um, I don't think they're spoilers, but maybe our listeners can note more as they read and, and do feel free to write in um, to to let us know what you noticed yep. here, because there's a lot. So first, of course, there are the flies, quote, those who survived thought themselves cunning to have outlasted the apocalypse. So definite Bible reference yep. there. The phrase light begets light was used, and that has a religious connotation and reference to godlike power in the book references the Bible. The author also has Nico's journey last eight days and a little a little light went off in my head because I celebrate Hanukkah and uh, the number eight is significant um, in the Old Testament. I learned through my research that eight symbolizes that which is beyond perfection. It is one step above the natural order. So I don't think that reference to the number eight is mm-hmm. a coincidence here probably because of my art history background that the number 12 comes up all the time in in huh. paintings the 12 apostles and and wow. all that so when i see a number when i when i know there's some religion attached i dig to figure out what it means when we're talking That's about the bible um then there's cinnamon cinnamon is used to keep away bugs i actually tried it in my house to keep away ants um was it successful I, i'm not sure <laughs> <laughs> I might try it again. <laughs> and they weren't sure in the book either. You know, they kept doing it, but there there were references uh, within the book. They were like, we're not even sure. And, and but they but still, you know, what was taught to them was the cinnamon. Put cinnamon well, around. We, we and have so, all these know. old old wives tales or folk wisdom that that we do. And it kind of seems to work, but we're not really Pretty sure. And this yeah. kind of this kind of fit in there. But cinnamon also has a Bible connection. And I don't know if this one was intentional on the author's part or not. But um, cinnamon is a precious commodity like myrrh mm. or frankincense that we know of huh. more associated with Christmas. Christmas. Um, but cinnamon is in there as well. Um, then. Uh, in Waterford, New Hampshire, which was a place mentioned, I don't think it really exists. Do you? No, I. So when I came across that in the book, I was like, "Oh, Waterford, New Hampshire. I don't think I know where that is." Especially in where they're talking about in the book, I think they had just left Concord and they were heading towards um, Manchester. So I was like, "Okay, this is where I'm. I'm around here all the time. I don't think I've ever traveled through water." So I think that was uh, fictitious. Yeah, I looked it up and I found a Waterford Apartments or something, yes, that's and that's yeah, thing. I found so, the same thing. Yeah. Anyway, if you live in Waterford, New Hampshire, let us know. (laughs) Um, There's a sign 
uh, as you enter that town in the book that says, be fruitful and multiply. <laughs> yeah, ick. Yeah. <laughs> but this definitely harkens to the Bible and the idea of Adam and Eve populating the world, which um, after an apocalypse, you know, that's yeah. what you expect. Yes. You have to repopulate the world. The book also brings up David and Goliath. This kind of punches you in the face, this symbolism here. Um, and here the Goliath is a sl- slingshot of character named Gabriel. Mm-hmm. Um, the character who is a religious fanatic named Bruno named his son Gabriel. Um, in the Bible, Gabriel was the one who announced the Virgin Mary that she had been chosen to bear God's son. So, yeah, I th- thought he really hit you over the head with that one. Yeah, definitely, definitely there. And then finally, my last one that I just want to note is Nico's father. Um, uh, her father's talk of Nico appearing as an angel when and where we needed an angel. Yeah. Um, so that opening chapter of the book, that really grabbed me, actually. And that um, that's another thing to pay attention to. It's there for a reason. And I kind of forgot about it and had to go back. I kept going back. And, yeah. and actually, quite a bit in the beginning of the book, I kind of I kept going back. Um, and looking at things. And the, and the other thing that you'll find out in the book, um, Nico's father was very science focused. Uh, and, and, you know, he had a great mind as science. And her mom, um, she talked about the Bible stories her mom uh, read. And so, yeah, that. and her mom was um, the biblical one where she had the strong faith. And it was interesting that Nico kept saying, science and faith together, science and faith together. Um, And I thought that that was was strong in the book. So I didn't feel like it was one or the other. um, And that her parents had such a wonderful relationship with even this science-minded dad and this biblical-minded mom. We often think of science and religion butting heads. So that's, yeah, that's interesting. So there's more on religion in here. Um, I decided to look up the waters of Kairos, which Nico was aiming to find on her journey. That word, and I'm not sure I'm pronouncing it right, Mm -hmm. Kairos just sounded like it came from something. Um, As this author was using a lot of symbolism with which I was familiar, I suspected that there's um, a lot that I didn't know, and uh, there's probably a lot that I still don't know. This odd name stood out as a potential symbol. So in my research, I learned that Kairos in the New Testament means the appointed time for the purpose of God, or the time when God acts, the opportune time. When I learned what this word meant, the deliverer's role made more sense to me. I don't want to give it away here, but it all ties together. But yeah, that does that that does make more sense. Definitely. Makes <laughs> I can hear readers saying, What are you talking about? What do you mean it makes sense? You gotta read the book. You have to read the book. You have so, to read it. So finally the book says that dreams are memories from past lives. I thought the mention of lives throughout the book was interesting and wondered if there was a religious connection here too. The author speaks of eternal recurrence on page 187. When I looked it up, I learned this refers to Ecclesiastes, which uh, what has been will be again. What has been will be done again. There is nothing new under the sun. Mm. And on page 191, Lennon even says all of this happened before and all of this will happen again. Okay, so I did a little tricky thing here because... Cheated. What? <laughs> I really wanted to have four themes because in the course of my research, I stumbled upon the work of doctors Tim, Jim Tucker and Ian Stevenson. And this work is just too good not to include in this podcast. <laughs> 
I was going to do a section on them and their work about children who remember past lives, mm. but I realized I could tie it to my religious theme since reincarnation is a strong belief for almost one quarter of the world's population or, or the world's religious practitioners. And I want to end on this because it's fun and it's really interesting. I think it fits in so well with our book that delves into past lives and reliving experiences. There's a lot in this book. I think some people are probably sitting there going, okay, we got portals and we have loops, the time loops, and we have these fly. There, There is a lot in this book. Well, one thing I love about doing this podcast is that you can sit and you can read a book all the way through and, mm-hmm. and some books you really, really love and some not so much. Mm-hmm. And I would say that's probably the same with the books that we've chosen for this podcast. But when you do the research and you spend so much time with a book and you realize that there's more than you realized at first right. blush, it makes all of these books, things you love, um, you, you know, even if I didn't like the book that much. I I love the book, if that makes any sense. Right. There's just something, I think that extra research is something so exciting that you're like, oh my gosh, was in this book. And right. So you do, you, you end up loving the book. Yeah. And you, I end up feeling like I understand the author better. Like, oh, that's why they did that. I thought that was really silly. And, but I get it now. Yeah. I get it now. There's a purpose. There was a purpose there. So let me go back to um, our interesting doctors. Dr. Jim Tucker runs the the division of percept- <laughs> the division of perceptual studies at the University of Virginia and he spoke about the founder of this lab in a conference that I linked to from our Pinterest page. If you are interested in this subject, I highly re- recommend listening to this talk. Sometimes it's really hard to get through a talk when you're just watching it on YouTube. Right. I was fascinated. I kept getting distracted because I, I had to get pulled into a classroom or something, <laughs> and I was getting frustrated. Like, I want to finish this <laughs> no, talk. Finish. It's so interesting. So um, Ian Stevenson became interested in this work after becoming head of psychology at um, the University of Virginia. He was supported by Chester Carlson, who invented the Xerox machine. Just an interesting aside. Hmm. It's nice to have wealthy people take interest in your work. Um, In 1967, so we're going way back. This this lab has been around for decades. Um, With Carlson's support, Stevenson established the Division of Perceptual Studies within UVA's Department of Psychology. He, quote, painstakingly and unemotionally, unquote, collected detailed past life memories of people around the world. Other psychologists and anthropologists took up the work, including Tucker, who is a child psychologist, and began research in this area in the 1990s. This work is not related to past life regression and hypnosis. I feel like I have to say that. Okay. It's, it's very different. In these case studies at UVA, children spontaneously talk about having lived a past life to their parents. Some of them identify a person by name. In other cases, the scholars do research to see if the child's reported memories match the life of a real person. Dr. Tucker's conference discusses what he does for research um, in the conference talk. During my research, I learned that the Sanskrit word, this is just kind of an aside, uh, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to spell it and then try to say it, <laughs> J-A-T-I-S-M-A-R-A, Jatismara means those who remember a past life. And it's significant that they have a specific word for this, I think. Hmm. Um, we don't, in our language, a word for a past life. 
Dr. Tucker explains Eastern and Western differences in beliefs and cases that the doctors have found of Jatismara between East and West. He says his research examines these interesting phenomenon, but don't prove reincarnation. So they they just get in touch with these children who who report having lived a past life or describe something to their parents that makes their parents think, where are they getting this from? Um, And they just document it. Um, So he talks about how many of the deaths children describe as their past lives were unnatural. So here are some phenomena that he Hmm. noticed. He notes that these children tend to be highly intelligent and verbal. They often have marks on them that relate to the deaths of the past lives that they describe. Kids with birthmarks, missing fingers, kids who reported being killed by gunshot and having birthmarks at the entrance and exit wound sites. Um, Some have birthmarks or other anomalies that relate to things loved ones did to them after death. For example, one had a smudge of soot on his ankle, um, or it looked like a smudge of soot, Mm -hmm. where as part of the death ritual, they they did that to his ankle. Um, Sometimes they find likes, dislikes, and emotions of past lives sometimes remain. Hmm. So Dr. Tucker says that for many, the memories of the past life disappear as the kids grow up. They don't usually retain them past age seven. And unfortunately, for the sake of time, I can't discuss any more details, but I highly recommend looking into Dr. Tucker. It's really, really fascinating work, and I didn't want to leave it out here. Yeah. And and you'll for those that have read the book or when you do read the book, you will um, see throughout that, um, like Kit and even Nico, um, they will say things like, in their mind, like, I've been here before, or, right. um, and it wasn't like a date, it wasn't a deja vu feeling. It was, I've done this before. This, you know, I've seen this before. So there, that, that's kind of this tie in with that there. And um, I feel like this is another thing we might need to ask the <laughs> author about because one of the characters in this book has a birthmark. Um, so it makes me wonder if David Arnold maybe had researched some of this as well. And maybe it will come up in the future if there's another book. Maybe. I hope there's a part two coming. Early in the, bo- in the book, the author refers to several people who disappeared when they take the same path Nico takes. Mm-hmm. I, I could see this being another yep. uh, path he takes with a second book. Um, I wonder if they'll, if they'll show up in subsequent books, if he keeps this storyline. But I think that there are lots of unanswered questions remaining. Yeah, Melissa, when I closed the um, back cover on this book, I felt like I actually had more questions than answers. Uh, I wanted I wanted it to, to neatly tie up, and uh, it didn't have that type of ending, and that is okay, um, because now with some of that research in there, I'm, I'm actually kind of glad it didn't neatly tie up, and it makes a little bit more sense to me now. Um, so maybe the author, though, will hear our pleas, and there might be a book two coming, I don't know. But that does conclude our podcast today. Listeners, as always, I am so happy you joined us. And if you are enjoying all that Melissa and I have to say, please make sure you tell your friends about the Curious Reader podcast. The Curious Reader podcast can be found on your favorite podcast app. And I can't let you go, though, not yet, without sharing what Melissa and I will be discussing next month. So there are three teens, two bank robbers, one way out. The bank robbers may be trouble, but they have no idea who they are really holding hostage. So join Melissa and me next month when we discuss the LGBTQIA diverse poignant thriller, The Girls I've Been by Tess Sharp. So thank you for listening. And remember, the curious reader seeks understanding beyond the book.